Good morning. Please open your Bibles to the 145th Psalm. Psalm 145. The notes are in the bulletin. Psalm 145. We've been in the Psalms now for going on two years, just about. And we've been alternating between six or seven psalms from one of the book of the psalms, and then we went through the pastoral epistles, we'd alternate back and forth, and now we are drawing to the close of the fifth book of psalms. This is our 30th or 31st psalm that we've looked at in our study. Next week will be our final week in this study as we read the final psalm, Psalm 150. But Psalm 145, in many ways, harkens the close of the book. Um, It's just as every one of the five books of Psalms closes with a doxology, the last verse of the first books of the Psalms is identical. Book five closes with a a five-psalm Hallel series. The five final Psalms of the book of Psalms are basically just, I don't want to say just, it's Scripture, are basically just praise overflowing and overflowing, and the trees praise God, and the rocks praise God, and all creation praises God as The universe awaits the coming of the king. And so Psalm 145 is a very significant psalm. It's kind of the capstone of the Psalter. I'd like to begin by reading it in its entirety. Psalm 145. A praise of David. I will extol you, my God and king, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. and You give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him, and he also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. 
Psalm 145, the capstone of the Psalter, the beginning of the end. I just want to notice a few things where we dive into the psalm itself about its position. The, the final structure and arrangement of the book of Psalms is post-exilic. We've seen psalms that are after the exile. And so some compiler putting together, organizing the book, chose to put this psalm here, and it's to draw attention to it. This is the final Davidic psalm. David, who wrote nearly half of the Psalter. This is his final psalm, his final word placed in here. It may not be the final song he composed, but in the ordering of the book, this is the final word we hear from David. And so it's given preeminence in that sense. It introduces the final five Hillel psalms, the close of the book, the, the epilogue. It's unique in its psalm title, the blank there. Literally, the, the title is a praise. The ESV translates it the song of praise, but it's literally just praise or a praise. It's, it's the name that the entire book of Psalms is named after, and it's unique. It's the only psalm in the Psalter with this name. And in some sense, the book takes on the name of this psalm. You can see its preeminence and priority there. And finally, it's the last acrostic psalm. I don't know if you know this, but many of the psalms are in an acrostic pattern where each successive line begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So Aleph and then so on. Psalm 119 famously is eight verses at a time. And the purpose of that is to, to promote and help with memorization. And so this is the final acrostic poem. Final acrostic psalm. And so for all these reasons, it has this place at the end of the book, the final word of David, the final acrostic poem, and as we'll see, the focus on God's kingly rule and his mighty saving deeds. This is the culmination, in many senses, of the Psalter, having come through the ups and downs and the despairs and the, the cries out to God and, and the rejoicings. This, this is the final word, as it were, in the Psalms, bringing together these themes and so we're going to look at it. It's broken into three sections, each, each divisible into subsets. In each section, um, somebody or something is said to praise God. And in the first part of the chunk, a description of the praise. So you see um, in, in verses 1 and 2, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. And then verse 3 really is David's praise. He's talking about praise, describing praise in the first two verses. In verse 3, he actually does it. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And that, that pattern of describing worship, why and how and when and where worship will occur, followed by declarations of praise. And so we're going to look at this in the three sections. The first section, verses 1 to 3, and, and really verse 21, it sort of forms a cap the final verse of the psalm, is personal praise. First person pronouns dominate. This is David's own personal praise. First, in the first two verses, describing, purposing, speaking about praise. And then in verse three, the actual overflow of praise. And, and notice all the different words here for speech. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise you your name forever and ever. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. These types of words dominate this psalm. 
This is a psalm of praise, praising God for who he is and what he does. That's what we're going to see, praising him for who he is and what he does. And so as we move in, I just want to make some observations here. First, in, in describing David's praise, it's significant that David calls him my God and king, because David is, after all, who? He's the king. What David is saying is above his throne, there is a higher throne, and we would do well to remember this. Above David's throne is another throne. Above the kings of the earth, there is a heavenly king. The, the name that is, that is written on Jesus' thigh when he returns to judge the earth is king of kings and lord of lords. And David, rather than taking the credit to himself, calls God his king. And we can take comfort in that, in that praise, recognizing God's kingship, which will be a major theme of the second half of this psalm, helps us take comfort in, in the lesser kings on earth and our pleasure and displeasure in how they rule. There is a throne above all other thrones. There is a king above all other kings. And it is to him that David directs his praise. And David, in so doing, reminds all of Israel that he is a, a, a regent king under the great king. Next, we see that David's praise is daily and forever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Praise, praise of God is, is not meant to be something that happens sporadically. It's certainly not meant to be something that occurs only on Sundays, Wednesday nights. It's not even something that's supposed to take place just in your quiet time in the morning. We, we are to live a lifestyle of praise. We'll see that in this psalm. It's, it's ridiculously, abundantly clear. God wants us to be a people of praise, a people whose lips overflow with blessing to him. And, and David here is, is purposing, he's committing himself. We would, we would do well to commit ourselves to decide, no, I, I will praise God every day. I will bless him for every day. This is going to be something on my lips every day, forever and ever. And that's not just hyperbole, because David, though he has died, is praising God this very day in heaven, right? For those of you who know the Lord, you will praise him every day, every day and forever and ever. This, this is our great activity. There's a season and a time for evangelism. That time will pass. There will be no more evangelism in heaven. There, there's a season and time for so many things, and yet worship and praise will continue forever and ever and ever. This is what we were made for, to worship the living God. And, and the rest of the Psalms is going to give us many reasons why we should do that. So what is the content of David's praise? Verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. You notice the emphasis here, just the bigness, the magnitude of the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And, and this is something that we can forget. If, if that notion of praise forever and ever in the back of your mind, and I'll be honest, this happens periodically with me, if you think, surely that's going to get boring. You know, somewhere into like the third trillion year, surely... No, but the Bible again and again informs us the reason we're tempted to think that is because we don't comprehend the greatness of our God. And that's why the psalm is saying it. It's not just hyperbole. 
But truly, our God is, is great and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. And some, some thoughtful theologians like Jonathan Edwards sort of suggest how this works, that because God's greatness is unsearchable, it's infinite. And the blanks here is that infinite greatness demands infinite praise. Infinite greatness, God's greatness is infinite. It is unsearchable. And that is why it yields infinite and unending praise. That because God's greatness is unsearchable, we will spend eternity searching it out, eternity learning new, wonderful, amazing things about our God, and we will never exhaust the well. Each day will be better than the last because each day we will know more of Him. And yet, in the ocean of who our God is and His greatness, we will never reach the bottom. Now, this is Jonathan Edwards' attempt to sort of explain how unending eternal praise could not grow boring. I, I think he's probably onto something, but you can consider how if, if every moment in heaven you are knowing God more and you are, you're learning more about him and you never come to an end, then all that's happening is your well, your bucket of reasons to praise him is growing and growing and getting deeper and weightier because our God is great and greatly to be praised. His greatness is un searchable. Infinite greatness demands infinite praise. That's, that's the logic of this first section. So David begins with his own personal praise. He's going to end with personal praise. We'll get to that at the end of the psalm. And now what happens is he, he expands it from personal praise, verses 4 to 9, to corporate praise. Corporate praise. Now, now the, the audience of those praising God is growing broader you can see that one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. I will meditate. So David's still in here with the group. There's still a few first-person pronouns, but now it's broadened out to the, to the gathering of God's people. Corporate praise. And once again, we have the description of praise in verses 4 to 7 as David tells of how one generation and will praise him and what he will do. And then in verses 8 and 9, the actual declaration of praise, the content of the praise. And so as we move quickly through this psalm, I just want to make a point here in verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That point I hear, we need to pass it on. And we've talked about this in, in previous weeks, the importance of passing on and speaking the good things that God has done. And you can't miss the words in this psalm. Extol, bless, bless, praise, praise, commend, declare, declare, speak, pour forth, sing aloud. Verse 10, give thanks, bless. Verse 11, speak, tell. Verse 12, make known. There's a lot of speech taking place by David and by God's people, and then we'll see all creation. There's a lot of speech taking place declaring the greatness of God. And it's only on that basis that one generation can commend his works to another. We've got to pass it on. Remember, we, we talked about how you're not supposed to be a bucket of grace. You're supposed to be a channel of it. You're not supposed to be a bucket. Don't keep it to yourself. If God has done something good for you, if God has revealed his goodness to you in some new way, pass it on. Speak it aloud. Have you seen something encouraging in God's word? Speak it aloud to someone else. Pass it on. 
This is the image. The, the reason why we are here today is because faithful men and women did this. Passing on the gospel, passing on the word of the cross, passing on the, the apostolic teaching and the faith once for all delivered to the saints. One generation to another. And we're always only ever one generation away from apostasy. If we don't take that responsibility seriously, we've got to pass it on. We've got to teach our children. We've got to teach our families. We've got to teach our neighbors. And you know this passage, Deuteronomy 6, 7 to 9. You shall teach these statutes diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, which is a pretty all-inclusive way of saying all the time. Not just Sundays, not just Wednesday nights, you shall speak of God's word and his law and his character. You sit, you rise, when you walk, when you lie down. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Which is to say, everywhere you look, everywhere you go, you are interacting with who God is and what his word says. That, that is God's ideal you can't be too much in this word. It can't be too much on your mind. You can't speak of it too much to your neighbor. And this is how God's greatness gets passed on and, and amplified because each generation has new wondrous works that they can pass on that God has done. New faithfulnesses, new mercies to proclaim. Now there's a danger though this not happening. And at least once in Israel's history, it did. We, we know that what set up the terrible period of the judges, if you've read through Judges, it can, it's kind of a depressing book because the people just keep abandoning God and, and worshiping other idols and gods. And the Lord gives them into judgment to oppression by their enemies. And they cry out for God for help. And he raises up a deliverer. And he help, and just goes in cycle after cycle until by the end it's ramped up. It's just Horrific. At the very beginning of the book of Judges, we, we get an insight into why all of that happened. Judges 2, verses 10 and 11. When the generation under Joshua had come into the land, and all that generation were gathered to their fathers, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That is a stunning statement. If, you just, if it just said they didn't know the Lord, then you could say, well, maybe they were well taught. They just were rebellious. No, they didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They didn't know about the Exodus. They didn't know about Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. They didn't know about manna in the wilderness. They didn't know about the defeat of the Amalekites and their enemies and the conquest of Canaan and the falling down of the walls of Jericho, which had happened less than a generation before. That is how quickly this can fail. So we can't assume it. If one generation is to declare God's greatness to the next generation, we got to get active on this. It's, it's got to be something on our, on our radar, something on our front burner. I believe it is. This is one of the things that our Awana program is helping to accomplish, passing it on to the next generation. But it's not something that's going to be done primarily through programs. 
as helpful as the Awana program is, it's done primarily through God's people speaking his praise to other people. It's going to happen primarily as you speak aloud what God's doing to your neighbor, to your children, to your brothers and sisters. And if this great chorus of praise that Psalm 145 is, is, is building up to is going to take place, we've got to speak. We've got to be a people of praise. We have, we have words of life to speak, and we must speak them. We've got to pass it on. And we've got to remember, next point, who he is and what he has done. David, who is well aware, probably more than most, of God's greatness, the sweet psalmist of Israel, personally saved by the living God time and time again, anointed as king, writer of Scripture, He says in verse 6, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. I mean, I suggest to you, if David needs to remember who God is, if David needs to draw to mind and think about who God is, we do too. We've, We've seen this in the Psalms again and again, the importance of remembering and remembering and remembering, bringing to mind Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, one of the great powers of sin is not so much that with God's children, it it always causes us to rail and raise our fist against God, but so often with God's children, the power of sin is the power to make us forget, for things to slip out of our mind as other things take front and center place. And David, David says, I will. will, I'm going to set aside time. I'm going to meditate, not on my problems, We'll spend hours doing that. We'll spend hours sitting and thinking about our problems. Not the state of the world or our political party. You can, you can do that if you want. What David's going to spend time doing, he's going to meditate on the splendor of God's majesty and on his wondrous works. I will meditate, verse 5. And again, if David needs to do that, how much more do we? And if your heart is, is not anywhere near the, the tenor of this psalm, maybe something you need to do more often, maybe a practical application. If you read this and you're like, man, this is just, I don't know where David's coming from. He's on like happy praise pills. No, he is somebody who cultivates a worshipful heart. How do you cultivate a worshipful heart? You set aside time where you put the glory of God in front of you and you meditate on it. You turn off the TV and you turn off the smartphone. And you turn off the radio and the distractions. And I need to spend some time remembering who God is. And I need to make sure I'm speaking who God is to my neighbor and to my children and to my brother. And this, this happens naturally with things we enjoy. You don't have to force men who saw a great football game to talk about it, do you? To expound it. You don't have to force people who've, who've seen a, a powerful movie to talk about it. In fact, in many ways, the, the speaking and the praising of the thing you enjoyed completes the enjoyment you know the feeling. You saw a great movie. You saw a great game, and you're just looking. Did you, did you see that? I want to talk about it. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a labor. It's not a burden. It's a delight. It should be. The praise and the speaking forth of his goodness. And so then, what is the content of what they will praise him for? Well, turn to Exodus 34. Turn to Exodus 34. The content is a declaration of who God is. 
It's there in verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. But what this is is a near direct quotation of Exodus 34. And Exodus 34 is a very, very significant portion of Scripture. I want to set the stage for you. Moses wrote the Pentateuch while Israel was on the plains outside of Egypt, somewhere in the wilderness wanderings, preparing to take possession of the land. And up until Moses wrote the Pentateuch, there, there was no written revelation from God. God spoke to individuals. He spoke to Job. He spoke to Abram. He spoke to Adam and Eve. There was no text. And so all the people had were oral reports, oral reports of the God of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. And then for the first time in history, God has one of his prophets write something. And Moses writes. And, and you've got to understand, God's revealing who he is, but he's doing it progressively. We, we speak of progressive revelation. And so who is this God that they worship? Well, they know he's powerful. They, they'd seen a mountain shake, right? You think about an Israelite. What do they know about this God? And he's delivered them from Egypt, and he's powerful, and he, and he struck down the Egyptians, and he controls nature. He, they saw the Red Sea part, but they really don't know all that much about the character of this God. And then Moses, after Aaron compromises his priesthood, makes a golden calf and worships it, and the Lord is ready to blast Israel and start over. Moses first intercedes for them, and then up on that rock, he cries out to the Lord to show him his glory. I mean, look at verse chapter 34, actually, verse um, 17 and 18. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken I will do if you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I will show my mercy in whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you can stand on the rock. While my glory passes by, then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So the short answer is, Moses, you can't see my glory and live. You've got to wait, you've got to wait over a thousand years till one who can show up who John can say, We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. No, Moses, without a mediator, you, you can't see my glory and live. But what I can do is I can walk by and I can tell you my name. And I can declare my name to you. And and that'll be enough glory. Your face will glow. And so Moses hides in the, in the cleft of the rock. In verse chapter 34, verse 5, and remember the request. Show me your glory. I need to see your glory. I want to know more about you. What makes you so great? I know you're great. Show me your glory. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God says, you want to know my glory? Here's my glory. I am forgiving and I am just. I am full, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this, this formula or portions of this formula become the most often quoted text of the Old Testament by the Old Testament. So when later Old Testament writers quote, sometimes we think of the New Testament quoting the Old Testament, the Old Testament can quote the Old Testament. Later writers can reach back and quote things. This verse or portions of this verse is the most often quoted passage of the Old Testament by later Old Testament writers. And it's, and it's what David is, is referencing to here. And so back to Psalm 145, what this means is God's people, the center point of their worship of God will be his revelation of his self-character. One generation shall commend your works to another. They shall declare your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I'll meditate. They will speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and sing aloud of your righteousness. And then, here it comes, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. I mean, we, we sing these songs, and, and we, this side of the cross, can see even more fully how gracious, how slow to anger. How slow to anger? Very slow. He's, he sent his son while we were his enemies. How abounding in steadfast love? Look, look to the cross. Now, they'd seen displays of God's patience. He was patient for 40 years with their fathers in the wilderness. He was patient with the grumblings of Israel. He delivered them from captivity and slavery. He entered into a covenant voluntarily with them at Sinai. So God's people will always be centering their praise of him around who he is and what he has done. Because of course God's great saving deeds all flow out of his patience, out of his slowness to anger, and out of his abundance in loyal, steadfast love. We praise him for who he is and what he does. And, and the content of the praise of God's people that, that David envisions as generation tells generation tells generation is that grand self-revelation of God in Exodus 34 to Moses. Show me your glory. This is my glory. I'm gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now, it doesn't mention the part about judgment here. It shows up a little later in the psalm. But of course, as God's people, as the people who receive mercy and the people who receive pardon, that becomes the high point of our praise and our singing. So it starts with personal praise, a commitment by David in the first three verses that he will worship God. Then it, it broadens to corporate praise. David's still present, but now in, in the third part, it broadens even further to universal praise. Universal praise. We go from personal praise to corporate praise to universal praise, verses 10 to 21. And notice how it broadens out now. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. And just like last time, where David snuck into the corporate, so the saints are still 
envisioned here, even though we've broadened out to all creation. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. And there's a description of the universality of the praise of the living God. All creation with all the saints. You know, and we can skip over those little phrases in the New Testament of from him and through him and to him are all things. You know, the great doxology at the end of Romans 11. But it's true. Everything exists. Everything exists for the glory of the living God. Everything. And everything will give him praise. All creation will give him praise. All creation right now, aside from us, is giving him praise. Day into day pours forth speech. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. All around us are trees, clouds, grass, praising the living God. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. All creation with all the saints. And they praise, and here's the next point, praise to the king for the rule of his kingdom. You notice that word show up now? It starts to dominate, whereas before it was all about works, 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 and deeds. Now, five times in three verses, we see, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Whereas God's people are, are focusing their praise in, in the previous section on his self-revelation as a savior and merciful. The creation celebrates and worships God along with the saints as well. We, we get to take part in both as the mighty king who rules over his kingdom. Now what's interesting is, is this, that verse in verse 13 gets either quoted or very similarly said in Daniel chapter 4, if you turn there, Daniel chapter 4. David here is predicting that not just God's people, but all creation will praise him, right? He's predicting that all creation will praise his kingdom. And in Daniel chapter 4, a very unlikely part of God's creation does exactly that. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. The great king, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was so humbled and so enthralled and captivated by the living God that he wrote a chapter of the Bible. Understand, pagan king Nebuchadnezzar writes a chapter of Scripture. Daniel chapter 4 is a proclamation of Nebuchadnezzar. We'll start in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. And then here it is, nearly a direct, I won't say quotation, but it's identical, or nearly identical to Psalm 145, 13. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. David predicting not just God's people, but all of his works, all of his creation bring forth praise, and here in a very unlikely work, 
Nebuchadnezzar doing exactly that. Jump to the end of chapter 4. As Nebuchadnezzar brings his testimony of his time eating grass to a close, he closes in praise, sounding very similar notes to the ones that David is writing, starting in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar is joining in with all of creation in praising the living God as the great king above all kings, as the throne above all thrones, as the ruler above all rulers. Again, take comfort. If you're living in Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar's day, you might think, man, things are pretty rough. Things are going pretty bad. Things are going downhill. They were. Nebuchadnezzar was evil. He promoted pagan worship. He tortured and, and took captive Israel and, and moved them away. And oh yeah, there's a lot of things to be down on. And yet God is sovereign as king over that. You know, if you look at the newspapers and their reports today, you can be discouraged. The kings of the earth rise up and, and move about and, and flex their muscles and, and cause problems. There still remains a king over those kings, and his kingdom endures. We, we do well to learn the lesson of David, the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar. Our God's in the heavens. He does what he pleases. His kingdom endures forever. If you focus on that kingdom, you've got some certainty and solidness under your feet. If you focus on the earthly kingdoms, they're like dust in the scales, and they rise up and they rise down. I'd, I'd encourage you to take the lesson of Psalm 145. Focus on God's kingdom Focus on his rule. It's stable, it's good, and it's permanent. Praise to the king for his rule of his kingdom. And then in verses 14 to 20, the content of the praise. The content of the praise. Marked by, by his rule over all that he has made. First, for his care and provision of his world. Verses 14 to 16. The Lord's care and provision of his world, the created order. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. All creation praises God just for his providential care over all things. You know, God, God is intimately involved in the running of this world. I just want you to listen to some of, the, some of the other texts of the Bible that speak of his sovereign control over all things. Listen to Job 38, 39 to 41, as God rebukes Job. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food. Two, two, two striking things here. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? The living God is saying that he is active at work in directing the lion hunting for his food. And just keep that in mind next time you watch the Nature Channel. There's the living God hunting the prey for the lion. 
keep in mind who the birds are crying to. You might think the birds are crying to their mother for food. They're not. They're crying to God for food. Next time you're outside and the birds are chirping, they're singing to God. They're crying to God. And he satisfies them. He feeds them. He cares for them. Psalm 104, verses 16 to 22. The trees that the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted, in them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are the refuge for the rock badgers. Because God cares about rock badgers. So he makes a home for them. He does. I mean, that's the glory of God. He cares about his creation. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for its setting. You made darkness, and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about, when the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. The scriptures again and again show that God is intimately, directly, on hand, involved in the running of the created order. He's not the God of the deists who made a clock and stands back and watches it run. He's got his hand in the mix. He's hunting for the lion. The birds are crying out to him. He's taking care of the badgers. Psalm 147, verses 8 and 9. He covers the heaven with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass to grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. And, and, and that's all deserving of praise. That's all deserving of praise. The eyes of all look to you, David writes. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand to satisfy the desire of every living thing. By the way, in this section, verses 14 to 20, notice, notice the superlative, the emphasis on superlative, all or every, it occurs 10 times, the word all or every. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves, and the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. And we're seeing God's superlative, complete and total perfection in the way he runs the created order. He cares for the created order. He cares for the birds. He cares for the rock badgers. He cares for the sparrows. And then Jesus says, and how much greater do you think he cares for us? Because that's what the final verses 17 to 20 focus on, his care and provision for his people. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fills the desire of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Notice what God does for his people. Notice how who he is informs what he does. Because of who he is, here's what he does. He is near. He satisfies. And he hears. And he saves. And he preserves. He does all these things for his people. And, and we're just seeing scene after scene of why praise God. Well, he runs the world and he takes care of badgers and lions and ravens. Oh my. And here... Look what he does for us. 
You draw near to him, James says he draws near to you. You cry out to him, he hears your, your prayer. You're dissatisfied, he satisfies you. You're lost, he saves you. He upholds and preserves you. That's what he does. And he does it all the time. All, all the places, in all ways, he does it. But I want to flip this around in our final few moments here and, and question, who are these people that he saves? Because he doesn't do it for everybody. Because you notice he does something very different for the wicked. All the wicked, verse 20, he will destroy. So I, I'm reading through this. I want to make sure I'm in the other group. <laughs> right? Amen? I want to make sure I'm in the other group. But we learn something about them. Look at these blanks here. What do they do? What do they do? The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call him in truth. So they call on him. It's first blank. They call on him. And they do it sincerely. That's not a blank. They do it sincerely. Sometimes people get scared. We talk about um, there's no atheist in a foxhole. This is a sincere, genuine call on the Lord. What, what characterizes his people? They call on him in truth. Next, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. They fear him. They fear the living God. They reverence him. They take him seriously, not flippantly. And third, they love him. They love him. Verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him. So, so we know what God does for his people, but his people are those who call out to him, who fear him, and who love him. And that combination of fear and love is, is critical. Um, commentator Franz Delich says this about the balance and the necessity of both. He says, fear and love of God belong inseparably together. For fear without love is an unfree and servile disposition. And love without fear is bold-faced familiarity. The one dishonors the all-gracious one. The other, the all-exalted one. They, they have to come together like Psalm 2, rejoice with trembling taking God seriously and reverently and yet loving him and, and delighting in him. This is what describes God's people. And, and so, because, because the second half of, of who God reveals himself to Moses to be, the one who by no means lets the guilty go free is seen here. Not just some, not just most, but all the wicked get destroyed. And so there's, there's ultimately gonna be two groups of people at the end of days, Two lines, sheep and goats, those who cry out to God, those who look to his son, those who love him and fear him and tremble at his word, those who through faith in the gospel of his son are reconciled with him, those who've trusted him. Notice they're not doing stuff unless you think crying out to him is doing stuff. They're not going out and working for him. These are attitudes of the heart. They fear him. They love him. They call out to him. And he does everything for them. He's near to them and he satisfies them and he hears them and he saves them and he preserves them. And then David brings it all to a close. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And then gathering everything else that's come before, let all flesh bless his holy name forever. My mouth. Let's speak the praise of the Lord. These are the last recorded words of David. What a legacy. What an epilogue. 
What great final words. And David in this last verse is inviting you and he's inviting me and he's inviting the trees and he's inviting the grass and he's inviting everything to join him in praise. And that's really what the psalm is calling us to do. Will we purpose ourselves? Will we dedicate ourselves to the worship, the meditation, the contemplation, the declaration of the living God? Will we join the great psalmist of Israel in his praise? Or will we not? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your grace this morning. Even now, you're caring for your creation. Even now, you are feeding the birds, hunting the prey for the lion, watering your trees, causing the earth to spin. And yet, Lord, you are mindful of us. You, the God of the universe, draw near to us when we call to you. You save us and you lift us up and you strengthen us and you satisfy us and you deliver us. And there are so many reasons to praise you, Lord. We are so easily distracted. We so easily sing the praise of lesser things. Lord God, let us be the people whose mouth is full of your praise, whose lips overflow with the praise of your greatness. Let us pass it on to our children and their children from one generation to another. Let us set aside time to meditate, remember who you are, and celebrate what you have done for us, who you are and what you have done, Lord God. Your greatness is unsearchable. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.